Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand you remember having an impact on you as a young girl growing up? Wow, I'm trying to think, what is the brand that I remember most from my mom? I think probably Tide. You know, just it's what we use, Tide and Downy. So a P&G brand was your first impression? Yeah. 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 You live a life of destiny, Kathy. What can I say? (laughs) Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show... I delve into how they do it. My guest today in the CMO podcast is not a CMO or CEO. My guest is Kathy Fish, the Chief Research, Development, and Innovation Officer for Procter & Gamble from 2014 to the end of 2020. Kathy is a true blue P&Ger. She worked at the company, my alma mater as well, for 41 years. Kathy came straight to P&G after graduating from Michigan State with a degree in chemical engineering, This episode will explore the relationship between marketing and R&D in a company, P&G, that excels in both disciplines. This is one of several episodes in the CMO podcast where we go deeply into what makes for a successful relationship between marketing and R&D. Not enough is written about or discussed on what makes for an outstanding partnership. And in most companies, it is tough to innovate and grow without it. This is my conversation with the first woman who has ever led the 7,000-person R&D Innovation Group at P&G, Kathy Fish. Kathy, welcome to the CMO Podcast, and I think we need to start this podcast talking about innovation, marketing, and P&G. So first question, big picture, we could probably spend the whole podcast on this, describe the role and remit of R&D at P&G. The purpose at P&G is to improve consumers' lives every day. And really, therefore, the purpose for R&D is to identify tensions and problems in consumers' lives that we can solve with superior products and packages that will improve their lives. And um, when we do this, we we set a new standard of performance in a category, or we create a new category altogether. And it's, it's quite fun. It's actually really a high standard for innovation and one that we have to hold ourselves to. When we look at our history, the majority of our value creation came when we got this kind of innovation right. Um, It requires being forward-looking, integrating how, where the consumer's life is going and where the possibilities that technology is opening up. Um, so, So that's primarily it. And then once we have that, or as we're developing that, We need to work really closely with marketing to be sure we're bringing it to life appropriately for the consumer. And we need to work really closely with our product supply organization to make sure we can scale up and manufacture it at a value that works for our consumer. Here's a hard question. Before you became the top R&D innovation officer, what was your favorite project in your years at P&G? I mean, my favorite project was working on our two-in-one shampoo business, um, which we first launched as PERT and then in Pantene. And, you know, at the time, we were a really small hair care company, um, very, very small. And two-in-one shampoos, people had been working on them for probably 50 years. It's really hard to clean your hair and condition it at the same time. Um, But we had an individual who did the innovation and that began a series of how do we market it? How do we get it around the world? Um, and it took hair care. It took um, hair care to be a priority com- a category for the company. It took us to being the biggest hair care um, category or, or company in the world. It took Pantene became the largest um, brand, hair care brand in the world. And Shoulders is the largest shampoo in the world. So it was just a really, really exciting journey. I remember it well. I never worked on it, but I remember it well. It was fun. So what's the biggest change in R&D since you joined? 
So when Gordon Brunner was our CTO, um, all of R&D reported through the CTO. And while R&D was embedded in the businesses, it, you know, reported up through him. And so he had the ability to put some tension in the system by saying, if you're not working on something that's more breakthrough, you know, back to what I said our purpose for the company was, I'm going to move the money to somebody else who is. And, you know, that tension um, made sure that we were staying true to focusing on the big innovations that really improve consumers' lives. And that was a good thing. But it also, you know, had some challenges because maybe we weren't as well integrated with the business as we should have been. So in the early 2000s, we moved R&D into the business units. There was a lot of advantage in being sure that our business strategy was connected to the innovation strategy and the relationships that you form, you know, being on the same team. A lot of advantage there. And things worked really well for a while until we started to not have the big innovations that we used to have because we were becoming more short-term focused. So, you know, that's the biggest change. And as you look at what I've tried to do in my role is how do we get the balance right so we have the benefits that you saw in both organization structures. Well, if you look at the stock price now, it seems to be working, that balance. Yeah, yeah. And we got to be diligent to keep it there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So could you also, from your perspective, describe the role and remit of marketing at P&G? Yeah, you know, I think really simply it's to create compelling communication with our consumers that brings to life how our products improve their lives. And, why, and, and really importantly, why we are better in doing that than other options they have in a way that makes an emotional connection. It's not that easy. Um, So if if they get it right though, it drives trial in an amazing way. And then our product should sort of speak speak for itself. So that helps to drive loyalty and repeat and they work together very synergistically. And then I think when things are going really, really well, they're, they're looking at the strategy for the brand in a way that keeps us the innovation leader. So they're identifying the emerging needs so that we, we stay on top. And they're thinking very holistically about the business so, and value creation so that, you know, we're thinking about how we're growing the categories with our brands. So what do you think is the most engaging, compelling consumer communication that you worked on at P&G with marketing? Oh my goodness. So, I mean, I have to go back to Pantene. I mean, for hair so healthy, it shines. And then it wasn't just the tagline, which was awesome, but the hair visuals that they created at the time were a huge innovation and how to use, you know, just visualization and lighting um, to bring to life the benefits of the product in a, in a really simple way. Um, Had to be one of the best I've ever worked with. And there have been a lot. Now I will also say that we, when we did, um, Tide Pods and Downy Unstoppables in Fabric Care. Uh, the marketing that Alex Keith worked on as she did those was, was you know, kind of disruptive in the fabric care category. So it was very compelling and bringing to life the benefits, but not in a standard fabric care way. And that's important too. What are the strengths of the relationship between marketing and R&D? So I want you to talk about the strengths. And what do you see as some of the opportunities to get better? So Mark Pritchard, our chief brand officer, and I worked really hard at bringing R&D and marketing together to be interdependent. And it's actually really hard to do. So we're both really good at what we do individually. But the real magic comes when we integrate a, a, a compelling experience, a superior experience for the consumer across all the touch points of the brand, starting with you know, the communication that drives trial, but also the product, the package, the retail experience, the value equation. Um, And I think in terms of strengths, beyond being really good at what we do individually, I think there's a clear understanding of our success model, um, superior products brought to life by surprisingly obvious ideas that grow the category. Um, So I think that's all there. Um, and we we use a really simple way to illustrate this. Um, we call it the magic of the intersection between what's needed and what's possible. And when you get that right, um, you know, of course, marketing focuses more on what's needed and R&D focuses more on what's possible. And I think that's maybe where the opportunities start to show themselves. R&D can get really wedded to our 
product or solution that we've created and lose objectivity on assessing whether it's really solving the problem that we identified that we needed to do to improve consumers' lives. Uh, and R&D can sometimes go for perfection at, when at times it's, there's going to be more value creation and getting to the market faster and continuing to improve. While marketing tends to be a little more short-term f- focused, and sometimes that turns into activity that really isn't driving the business forward for the consumer or the business. We're not creating value for the consumer or the business. They can also be more risk averse. Um, So these big innovations are big investments in R&D, in capital, and then ultimately in marketing when we launch. And when you get it right, it's a beautiful thing. But if you get it wrong, it's really painful. So they can be risk averse in that space as well. Um, They can be frustrated on how long it takes when innovation is required. And sometimes they just ask for things that are nice to have versus really um, letting R&D focus on the things that are really going to matter. And those nice to have things add complexity. And the thinner you spread yourself, the less likely you are going to be to get breakthrough. Um, So with all that, um, I will also say very important to me in my journey is that um, because of how we're organized and the shorter term focus of marketing, it has been really hard historically to get marketing engaged in the front end of innovation. And that, that means that R&D often works on innovation too long um, before, before um, we get feedback that says, ah, we were a little bit off track and that leads to rework and a lot of expense and frustration. This is a really powerful point you're making, Kathy, this um, difference in career pathing and career planning and incentives. Uh, when I was at PNG, it was tough to get marketing involved in the front end because they felt like it was career suicide. Yeah. Because they wouldn't have things yeah. to show in their annual exactly. work and development plan. Any progress on that in, in, in how you and Mark work together? Yeah, so we've been working um, to uh, bring in the strengths of the startup community as we're working on creating new revenue opportunities, taking a lean innovation approach. And you know, a key part of that is making sure you have small, dedicated, multifunction teams that are working the product, but also the consumer and the business model at the same time, very iteratively. Um, and keeping the investment small until you know you've got something that's, that's good and you sort of double down as you learn more. So as we're doing that, we are getting more marketing people into the work. It's moving fast enough that they're interested in doing it. They love working that way. Um, and we're still working... Um, do they feel like they're going to be rewarded for the work that comes mm-hmm. out of that? And I think the um, leadership of the company has really embraced now that, yes, we have to operate the business, but we also have to create the future. And we need our senior leaders to be ambidextrous, meaning they have to be able to do both. And so, therefore, they need some experience in both sides if they're going to be effective at doing that. and. So we're starting to, um, I think continuing to since I've retired, um, put some of our best people in the growth work space to get that experience. Um, and then if, when people get promoted out of that, it starts to become a more virtuous circle. So I think we're still in the journey, but making good progress. Could you describe growth works? You just dropped that word. What is that in PNG? So GrowthWorks is our program to create new revenue streams for the company. Um, and we that's the place where we applied lean innovation principles in, in thinking about how we do it. So, you know, again, I think about our role as leaders is to perform today on our core brands with our core platforms um, and operate those really, really well. But then we also have to create these new revenue streams and these really big breakthrough innovations. And those are in our GrowthWorks program. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. I've heard you say before, I love this, uh, that you've got to have the product, 
you've got to have the story and you've got to have the business model. And I just think that's so simple and so profound. I think every failure I worked on in my life at P&G and after, one of those wasn't right. Yeah, you know, and it's funny, I think um, we used to just measure whether we were growing share. And that's important. But, you know, really, really, the business model is, are we growing the category? Because that becomes a very virtuous circle. When we're growing the category, our customers like Walmart and Target are really happy. Um, if we're just taking share from somebody else, it doesn't really actually do them any good at all. And they get very frustrated. Um, and, and when we're growing the category, our suppliers are happy and they're willing to work with us more. Our consumers are obviously happy because the category is growing because we're doing something meaningful and we're happy because we're getting value creation out of it. So um, we have we have come back to putting a lot more focus on category growth. And we have learned that when we're growing the category, we're going to grow share too. Right. Yeah. It comes along with it. Yeah. I've, I've learned a lot since I left P&G about there just aren't many companies who have accountability in their businesses for growing the category that these companies are in. And many of them market, are market leaders. And there are no KPIs or no rewards for thinking about growing the category and executing it. And I think it's, it's such, not as easy to measure, but you have to figure it yes, out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're a market leader, because if you don't especially do it, when no you're one market will. Leader. Cause otherwise, the, especially in our businesses, the categories can commoditize and that's just a bad place to be for everybody. Now you and Mark have this strong alignment on your mission and you, and you articulated it a few moments ago. How do you, bring that to life with, I think you had 7,000 people in R&D. I think Mark has about the same number in CMK with more, you know, consumer market knowledge and marketing. How do you bring that to life with thousands and thousands of people? We just really um, looked for opportunities to show up together. He would come to our big R&D events and we would have a, you know, a conversation kind of like this. Um, you know, we would show up on stage at CES together and, you know, that would, that would show throughout the organization. We sponsored the GrowthWorks program together. Um, you know, I could have tried to run that myself, but, you know, it, it needed to be very multifunction and we're just much better off, um, when we are, you know, he and I know each other well. So as a result of that, we're very comfortable challenging each other and, and we come at things from a totally different perspective at times, and that just gets us to a better solution and, you know, just a more robust approach. So um, I, it always surprised me, but it was definitely true. When we showed up together, people got so much value out of that. We started doing innovation reviews on big projects together as well. So rather than him just reviewing the marketing and me doing the R&D, sometimes we would do that together, especially in markets that were having challenges like one point China was a big, big, big challenge for us. So we'd go together to China and do that. And, you know, those kinds of things, again, you're just showing up together. You're already going here, but I would like you to reflect upon uh, your greatest collaboration experience in the business units before you became the top R&D innovation officer. And what was it about that that worked so well between marketing and R&D? And as the top R&D innovation officer, what was your greatest collaboration experience? Maybe you've just talked about it, showing up with Mark together yeah, and setting yeah, that model. Yeah, a little bit, but, but I want uh, let, me, let me finish a little bit more. When I came into the role, um, you know, we had just had an activist investor and changed a lot of the leadership of the company. And there was a lot of alignment that innovation, the innovation machine at P&G was broken, but there really was an alignment on what the problem was. Um, or what we needed to go do about it. So one of the first things I, I started, but, but Mark really partnered with me on, was um, a study of the success factors behind our billion-dollar brands. And, you know, not surprisingly, they were kind of common across, and we could codify what they were. And behind each of them, we were creating, uh, we generally were creating a new technology platform that elevated the standard in the category, creating a new S-curve that you could leverage for value creation for many, many years. And then we were bringing it to life with a surprisingly obvious idea that the product and package delivered a delightful experience against and a plan to grow the category. So we got, we, we codified all that. 
And we took it all the way to value creation and, you know, what the value creation model for P&G was. It wasn't just an innovation model. It was a value creation model. So that was really powerful. And then we, Mark and I and, you know, John Moeller was involved too, also did a study of our last He was the CFO at the period. time or the COO. CFO yeah. at the time, yeah. yeah. Um, our last period of rapid growth behind innovation in the early 2000s and you know, what was driving that. And again, while we did a lot of things, we found that the majority of value creation, again, came from these big innovations um, that we were able to leverage for multiple years. So that drove a lot of alignment that we could use with the board, we could use externally, we could use with our organization internally on what it was we needed to do. Um, as we, you know, as we got clear on all this, you know, it, it was clear that the things that had been really big had been well-designed and well-crafted. So, you know, I invested in innovation design and R&D so that we, and really brought the theme of craftsmanship to life. And Mark and I worked together on that to think about how do we holistically craft innovations across all the touch points. You hear us talk about that a lot. So, you know, I think that was um, really, really powerful with Mark. Um, And, you know, I think it's, hopefully it's leading to, you know, our brand's, our big brands were being challenged as, are they relevant to millennials? But as we kind of got back to who we were and then committed to staying on trend, you know, where the world is going, um, we're finding that big brands are incredibly relevant to millennials and it's showing in our results over the last three years. Um, so, and then I've, I've talked already about GrowthWorks and how Mark and I decided to co-sponsor it. Um, and, you know, that was just really heavy lifting. When I say co-sponsor, we were active, active co-sponsors. We met with the central team that was um, building the capability probably every two weeks, and we were available anytime that they had a challenge because it was you know, a really big cultural change for the company, and it needed a lot of perspective and help from us. So excited to do that. Um, and I, you know, I guess I mentioned this before, but you know, the whole concept of ambidextrous leadership coming out of getting clear that you know the work and the culture in operating the core business, and then doing new new work are very different, and our leaders embracing that is really really helpful because I think I think we've gotten in trouble in the past when we've sort of treated everything the same, and so then we're either taking too much risk on our core business because we're trying to be too agile or, and, and, um, or we're just being so disciplined and structured that we're not getting the creativity we need for more breakthrough things. Does that make sense? Leadership is complicated. It is complicated. <laughs> it is. And, and, you know, I think it's a day's world. I, you know, a lot of our leaders grew up um, directing, right? Like knowing the answer. And I think with the world changing so fast, and with the reality that none of us individually are really ambidextrous, we tend to skew to one side or the other. You need to build teams that have the skills that you need. So that starts with understanding your strengths and where you might need help, right? And it, start, it also starts with really valuing all the different kinds of work that have to come together to make things hum. If I strip away all of that, what you did, you collaborated in looking backwards at what yeah. made for a billion dollar brand. So you learn from yourself, the principles that yep. have driven. So that is a really powerful concept for our listeners. And you look forward by co-working or, or collaborating on growth works. And I know you work some outside suppliers on that. And you work with the business leaders in terms of how to bring it to life in their business units. So two really high leverage, high impact collaborations that have had a material impact on a very large enterprise. Fabulous, fabulous yeah. story. Fabulous lessons. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I think, I think both were really important. You know, P&G has been around for 184 years because we have historically always embraced constructive disruption. And we use the word constructive because it's easy to disrupt if you destroy value. You know, we can argue that a lot of DTC brands do that because they don't have to make money. They just want to grow fast enough to be able to sell themselves, right? Um, and, you know, that works for some of them. But um, for us, that is just absolutely not, absolutely not going to work. So constructive disruption is all about 
how do you see where things are going and, you know, change, change the game in a way that's good for the consumer and good for us. Um, and to do that, we have to invest in, you know, forward looking, like what are the big consumer trends and what are the big technology trends? And therefore, what are the opportunity spaces that could happen in the future? And the reality of anything that you're trying to do that's forward looking is their hypothesis. Like, you can kind of see where things are going, but it's, you're not exactly sure. So, so you have to test your way there and learn your way there. And one of the most exciting things about the GrowthWorks effort is it helped us be a more experimental culture um, and really go start testing, really defining the problems we're trying to solve, having hypotheses against them, and then going off and testing in a small way. And you know, if you talk to Mark, he would say, it's really changed the way we even think about advertising, right? So everything doesn't go to the agency anymore. We run a lot of our experiments internally. Sometimes we use our own employees to film, copy. We see if it makes a different, moves the needle, and then we decide if we're going to go more sophisticated or leave it where it is, right? And it's made us much more agile. It's fantastic. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. How did you and the other leaders at PNG help build ambidextrous skills among the leaders? Or how did you help them be self-aware of where they're strong and how to supplement their style on their leadership team? Yeah. Um, you know, we started talking the concept and I think it's, you know, that helps, but then that's just not enough. And so, you know, again, I think we learned that most of our leaders today at P&G have had a big innovation experience. Most of our CEOs are presidents. So that was good. Um, and I think we embraced then that we really want to think about how to get our top development talent into these more breakthrough innovation spaces so they can learn. That was one way. I also brought in some training, education from a university that really, you know, on disruptive innovation and was successful in getting the leadership of the company to go through the course. I mean, it, you know, that wasn't easy to do because it's a big time investment, but we did it in, in small groups and we had great discussions that led really people to start thinking about, you know, how do I do this differently? And I think, you know, you were at P&G for a long time. Everybody embraces innovation. The real challenge is how do you manage the risk that's inherent in it, um, particularly in a world where test markets had kind of disappeared and we were often going national or global all at one time, right? And if you fail, it's just so painful. So anybody who had seen a failure or experienced a failure did not want to be in that space. Um, so the GrowthWorks effort has also really helped because it talks about starting small. Like you don't give them a lot of money at the very beginning. You you get you you know you validate your problem, then you validate with minimum viable prototypes that your solution might work, right? And then you sort of get an idea of the business model. And then, and then you go to the next phase of incubating it. So you're, you're really step, stepping into your investment in the space. And in doing that, you're big time managing the risk of the innovation so that you're not getting ahead of yourself and um, digging these holes that are really hard to get out of. That also allows you to run a lot more experiments so because you're starting smaller and, and therefore you're much more likely to, I mean, you're, you're more agile, you have more innovation, you're more likely to find the big things because you're out experimenting. Um, so, I, you know, I think that's been a big part of it. And you're operating more like a venture capitalist, right? Yeah. And that, and on that side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. 
Okay, now a quick story about a great collaboration experience with marketing when you were in the BU's business units. Yeah, yeah. So in the early 2000s, I moved from our fabric care business to our baby care business. And, you know, it's a totally different business. Um, I didn't know the people. I didn't know the technology. The culture was very different. Um, It's very capital intense. So, you know, innovation moved slower by definition. Um, And I worked with Jane Wildman in baby care at the time. She was on the marketing end. She was a senior marketing leader. Yeah, she was. She was our senior marketing person. And we had some history from our days also together in hair care. So there was a lot of trust and respect for each other there. Um, And my very first job in baby care was the front end of innovation before I became the um, leader of the R&D organization overall. And we had many, many, many issues. Things took way too long. They, you know, R&D cooked them for a really long time. And then as you moved them forward, if anything was off, it had to go back. Um, Things definitely were not consumer-led enough. I mean, we had the mantra that we needed to be um, consumer-led, not converter-led. Baby, the manufacturing mm-hmm. system. Um, and then often things that were coming out of the front end were just too expensive. And so, you know, th- you're selling these things at a time in consumers' lives when they don't have a lot of money. I mean, think about the cost of diapers and how many people use and all that. So they have to be a great value. Um, so I knew how important it was to get marketing support in the front end. And uh, Jane became my partner in doing that. And I will tell you, The R&D organization was incredibly hesitant at first. They thought I was crazy because they were sure that these marketing people were going to prematurely kill what they were working on. Because, you know, a lot of times when you're starting on something, you don't have it quite right. Costs aren't right. You know, you learn your way there over time. Um, And so they didn't want to, they were sure that was going to happen. But what they really found um, was a lot of help in better focusing the work on what was going to make a difference for the consumer. Um, and that led to, you know, accelerated innovation and also more pull once it was time to, to move it into the downstream organization to go forward to market. So it turned out to be a really, a really great space to be in. Um, I will say that um, you know, two things came out of that. We really, we ended up creating a model for the front end of innovation for the company that we rolled forward. And as we, you know, I would invite her to our innovation reviews and um, AG was our CEO at the time. And he just was, um, he just saw the collaboration and he thought it was a wonderful model and asked us to capture how we did it. So um, it was a great time in baby care. We grew the business, uh, you know, I think from $4 billion to $10 billion yeah, over I remember a six well. or seven-year period. It was a lot of fun. So I would like you to, we've, we've talked about organization a few times already. I'd like you to talk about what is it about the culture at P&G, the organizational design, the reward systems, the incentives that are helpful for collaboration between R&D and marketing, and which ones are not helpful. I think the fact that innovation is our lifeblood, you know, so that's more cultural, would should by definition drive collaboration because an innovation needs that holistic look and perspective. Um, so that's good. But the reward system of what have you done for me this year? You know, how much did you grow volume? How much did you grow profit? just doesn't really work when you're thinking about innovation at all. So that is a disincentive. And, um, you know, the other thing about marketing historically has been, you know, it is very up or out. And if you don't get promoted on a certain time frame, people start to get really antsy and nervous. And so, so that's a big problem. I know they're working through how to change that. And I, you know, I'm a year out now, so I don't know exactly where that is. But, I, you know, I just think that's really, really important. And, and we're getting more to, you know, what's your impact on the business? And, and if you are elevating the standard in a category, that should be able to be measured in an impact beyond just this month's sales and profit, right? And it gets in the way in investing in the building blocks that you're going to need to win for the future, too. It's like, why do I want to take resources to do that 
when I can take those same resources and move the needle today. So, you know, one, another one of the things I worked on in my time was, you know, getting really clear with people on what percentage of our resources should be invested in the front end of innovation. And for it, it's different by business, but it's between 20 and 30%. It's a pretty mm, significant chunk. amount, right? And um, the leadership didn't necessarily have to be ring fence, but the resources themselves needed to be ring fence because there's always problems today that will suck you in. Um, and, you know, we, you know, we're never rigid. We would make exceptions, but we would try to make exceptions on things like, okay, we're doing Tide Pods. We're now launching. It's a lot heavier lifting than we expected. So, but it's a big innovation that's elevating the standard in the category. So we can take those front end of innovation resources and use them to help execute and solve some of the problems that we're having. That's appropriate. But if there's just like, we hope we can do some more cost savings because we're a little short on our profit forecast this year. That's just not, that's not strategic. That's not appropriate. We need to figure out a way to do that with the resources they have. What are your three essential bedrock principles from all of your wonderful experience for successful, collaborative, enjoyable relationship with marketing? So um, I would always say we are, part of our work in, works, work in growth works has been to move from focusing on the solution to focusing on the problem. Because when you align on the problem that you're trying to solve, um, it just, it, it, it keeps everybody together. Now, when we started that journey, the problem was always we're not growing fast enough. And that is not a good problem definition. The problem needs to be a consumer problem that you're going to solve that's going to improve their lives. Um, and that keeps everybody focused on what's important. The second thing I would say is to create a fast cycle experimental culture and share with each other what you're learning. Um, I, I personally always found that my marketing partners brought a lot of perspective I wouldn't have considered. Um, the best teams are diverse teams because they come at problems from different angles and challenge each other to think differently. But if you're going to challenge each other, maybe the most important thing is to really work on developing trust by being transparent on what's working and what's not. You know, if you try to show that, you know, your work's perfect, but your partner's work has issues, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't really develop the kind of trust that you need. And the investment in doing that is just super important. We have a lot of our listeners who I'm sure are super inspired right now to elevate their relationship with R&D in their organization. So I'd like you to give them practical tips, advice, rituals, whatever it might be. If you were in their shoes in a senior marketing job or a middle marketing job, going back to their organization tomorrow, what sorts of things would you advise them to do? So, yeah, I really important. I, you know, one of the first things I would say is to take the time to start with strategy that includes like how you're seeing around corners to see how the consumer's life is changing and the possibilities that technology is opening up. So that strategy can become a guidepost to align your work that you're going to take on. Um, and you likely won't be able to get there in one step, but you can get started today uh, and invest in what else you need to get there. And, and that guidepost is always a way to, to evaluate whether ideas are good ideas or not, whether they're moving you in the right direction or not. So um, one of my best experiences on this was Pamper Swaddlers, um, you know, back to my relationship with Jane. Um, in Pampers, we, had, we brought in design people and we sort of embraced design thinking, which meant really getting clear on what, what, what was the desired consumer experience that you were going for. And for, for newborns, that was swaddling my baby in comfort and security and, you know, a very emotional connection there. And then we designed the perfect product to deliver that, you know, as a minimum viable prototype. It was beautiful. It was like blanket-like softness. It had overlapping fasteners. It had a liner to handle runny BM and, you know, a urine indicator, all sorts of beautiful features. Um, and I will say, while it was beautiful, the reality was nobody had a clue on how to make that diaper affordably. But what we could do and what we did do was get started. So, you know, we could start with the equity 
and, and the advertising and put as many features as we could on the diaper to get going. And then and we did that. And then we could invest in what was needed to get the rest of it in place. And that, that was the approach. And honestly, the brand probably grew uh, 20% a year for probably, probably 10 years behind that strategy. And it kept everybody focused on what was important. So that investment and time to do that work can be incredibly valuable. Um, I would also say from a marketing side to have the discussions not only on can we do something, but should we do something? Our technical community is really, really talented. Um, they can do almost anything. But the question really should be, uh, is the benefit that we're going to get for the consumer out of this work worth the investment and resources that are being used to deliver it? And when we don't do that, it gets um, it just gets difficult. It, it causes a lot of tension between the two groups. And when we don't do that, it causes a lot of um, tension between the two groups. And the R&D group actually gets really demoralized because they're doing great work, but they're being beat on to do more and they just don't have the capacity or the resources to do it. And I'll also say, I think I said this before, but breakthrough innovation really does require focus and invention. And if you're spreading your technical resources really thin, they aren't going to have the time to do things that are really breakthrough. So anything that can be done to get rid of low value complexity should be. You know, I have actually heard am, am I, Jeff Bezos's approach to innovation really speaks to me in a lot of different ways. And that is one of the things that Amazon puts a lot of focus on is getting rid of the complexity that doesn't move the needle for the consumer. Um, and then, you know, finally, I guess I would say to leverage lean innovation principles. They're very powerful. They are all about creating consumer love. That's at the center. Um, and they are all about, you know, experimenting with minimum viable prototypes, pivoting based on what you learned, um, being multifunctional, you know, working the three elements together all at the same time that we talked before. So very powerful there. One legacy of your time at P&G is uh, Chief R&D and Innovation Officer is a really good Harvard Business School case, which is very current. It's just really been written and published. I'd like you to talk about why you participate in that, because that's quite a commitment. And what is your hope for the impact of that case on rising young business leaders? So, you know, I had the pleasure to learn from Clay Christensen who's really well known for his work on disruptive innovation. Um, you know, he worked some with, with P&G before my time in this role, but then I, you know, I got to spend a little time with him. And then I also got to work with Linda Hill, who's from Harvard and the author of one of my absolute favorite books on innovation called Collective Genius, um, which is, again, a big part of what I believe in, in the collective power of the organization. Linda asked us to participate, and really, I agreed to participate only because of the respect I had for her. Um, I also did think it could be used to help drive this concept of ambidextrous leadership and what we were learning about it and how to bring it to life in a way that really worked for the organization, and that has been a huge passion of mine. I will say they did such a terrific job. It really helped us to step back and look at the progress we had made overall. So, you know, sometimes when you're in a change situation, you're just kind of slogging through all the challenges that come with that. It's a lot of hard work and you, and, and you lose sight of the big picture. So it was a gift for us to be able to step back and see what they had put together. Um, and then we were able to leverage it internally to share it. You know, all, all those that were involved directly with the effort understood the story, but now we could communicate it much more efficiently internally as well, which I think has been really exciting for us. Um, I do think that one of the biggest challenges in today's world is, for, especially for people who have been really successful, they're talented, they're experienced, um, but the world is now changing so fast. It's hard to, to embrace that they need to change their leadership style to really empower the organization in a, in a bigger way. Um, because there's no way that they can do it all themselves. There's no way that they have all the skills. 
or have the majority of the answers. And I loved how our GrowthWorks program helped people think about how to do that, leveraging questions rather than statements. So, you know, if you ask teams, what have you learned and how did you know and what do you need to learn next and how can I help you? It creates a very different conversation than you should go do this or why didn't you do that or, um, or just a more judgmental environment. So, so I, you know, I think that's a great thing and, and just an opportunity for everybody to really think about, you know, how, how, do I, how do I run an organization that performs today and creates the future? How do I empower um, my org- and really unleash the talents that are deep in our organization by managing the risk appropriately um, and only getting senior leaders engaged when we really need them to be engaged? What's your hope for this case for young students? I hope it just causes them to really think about innovation. Innovation is really hard. And part of the process has to be failing. And, you know, as I tell people, we're not really embracing failure. We are embracing fast cycle learning. And if you're going to learn fast in a, in a if particularly creating a future where, you, where the answer is not clear, um, you're going to fail along the way. So that's what we're embracing, fast cycle learning. And, and uh, so that, that's, I hope, I hope it gets people to really think about that. And, you know, pers- particularly the, lead- the future leaders of the, the world tend to be type A. They tend to have been straight A students or mostly A students. They're used to success on everything. And, you know, just learning how to be a learner, a lifelong learner, is a, is a really important part of innovation. Kathy, we're going to move to the creative brief. You're a chemical engineer by training. What's the nerdiest habit or ritual you have? I needlepoint. Is that considered nerdy? I would consider it nerdy, but my wife would not. I found it incredibly relaxing in retirement. It's been great. So something you are very proud of in your career is your kids never say they felt second. They always felt first. How did you do that? Just like anything, you have to really spend the time thinking about what's most important to you. And I got, I know I got some really good advice early in my career to say, like, set up your life so that when you're at work, you're fully on at work. You know, you have the support you need with your kids to feel like they're well cared for. And invest whatever it takes to do that. Um, and, but then also when you're at home, be fully present at home. If you go to a soccer game and you're, you know, reading your work the whole time and not really paying attention, your kids will know that. Or if you're, you know, in the house, but you're not really engaging with your family, they're obviously going to know that too. So I thought that was great advice. And I think having kids also forces you to do what Lean Innovation does. It's like, get clear on what are the most important things? If, if I think about innovation, every innovation requires 100 things to happen before it's done. But there are like two or three things that if those are not solved, the rest doesn't matter. So if you can, if you can focus your energy first on those, you can get much more efficient in what you're doing. Um, and so the, being much more focused and efficient at work really helped me as well. You're a big gratitude person. What are your gratitude rituals? I think it's really important to start every day thinking about what you're thankful for, Um, because it really kind of sets your brain in the right mood versus like, oh, my gosh, all these things are happening that I have to deal with. Uh, It's it's a totally different approach um, that I've actually learned um, from a book I read, but it actually works. Um, So that's a ritual. I also believe in the power of prayer. So, um, and in that prayer, giving thanks, but then also asking um, for what I need for the challenges I have ahead. That's a good place to wrap it, Kathy. I'll let you get back to your needlepoint or whatever you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you for this, Kathy. uh, We worked at the same company for many years, we overlapped a bit, Uh, we never worked together directly. But I've always admired you from afar. It wasn't so far when I was there at the company, but it just has been wonderful to reflect on so many of these so 
such core issues for the future of business. Frankly, that's what this podcast has been about. Yeah, thanks, Jim. I mean, you met, you had a huge impact on the company, and um, I think that this effort to really take learning and particularly on how R and D and marketing can work more closely together will be very, very valuable. So, thank you for doing that. That was my conversation with Kathy Fish. Three takeaways from this rich conversation to apply in your business and life. The first one, leadership presence, how important it is and how you can get much better at it with practice. When she got the big job at P&G, she hired a coach and she learned how to improve her leadership presence to the point where she was not only good at it, but in my estimation, great at it. Second takeaway, when you're working with marketing, how important it is to show up together go to each other's meetings, hold innovation reviews together, appear at outside conferences together. There's just nothing more important than signaling to the organization about the strong collaboration between marketing and R&D than the leaders showing up together. Third takeaway, the power of leaders asking questions versus having answers and directing. Kathy talked about how the management style at P&G is shifting to more questioning, more learning, more curiosity, versus directing activities. And why is this so important to be more questioning versus directing? Because you pull out the talent and the richness and the diversity in your organization. When you're asking questions about what people are learning, what they're doing with the learning, how they're going to move to the next phase, you tap into their knowledge, their passion, their commitment to the company. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.